0: Welcome to Podbless Canada, the McDonald laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar. I'm the program director and monk senior fellow for foreign policy at the institute, and today I am absolutely delighted to welcome a colleague of the political class who's now in Canada, a giant mind from the United Kingdom, Mr. Blair Gibbs. Blair served as former advisor to uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson until September of last year, September 2020, before everything fell apart. And presently is a political and public policy consultant with the UK agency Public First. Blair, welcome to Canada and welcome to the MLI Institute podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Now, you let's start with something a bit personal because I enjoy getting into the people behind the ideas as much as I do getting into the ideas themselves. Tell me one observation that you have taken away from the spectacular year we now call 2020.
1: Yeah, it's been an amazing year and a disruptive one for not just you know industry and and businesses, but for almost everyone's personal life. I'm sure. I uh, moved across the world during it and uh, uh, decided to make Canada my adoptive home, having married a Canadian. And uh, but I uh, also was then kind of able to have a perspective from two sides. I was in the UK when the, the pandemic began, and I've been in Canada for most of the time that it's been unfolding. And so it's been interesting to to see how different governments have tackled it, and also how the sort of public perception of the government's response to this pandemic has, has, has been different in in each country. I think my, my biggest takeaway would be that the media and the political class in each country where this pandemic has has impacted, has been very focused on that one country. And it's been judging its own politicians by their their success or otherwise in terms of, you know, getting case numbers down and avoiding deaths in that country. And it's and it's perhaps because of that international perspective that I have that I, I feel it's sometimes a bit unfair that countries only judge their own politicians by their own standards. When, you know, if you look at how the pandemic played out in Europe, you know, many countries have um done far worse than the UK. I know that in Canada the US is a country that uh, people like to look at, you know, for all sorts of comparisons, but typically during this pandemic the um the measure of success has been very much a, a a sort of parochial one and uh in fact of course all these challenges have um been unprecedented and have hit all governments pretty much at the same time and they've each ref- you know responded in their own ways and and some have just done better than others. But um, the media and the public don't often hear that story.
0: No, and the media and public tend to be pretty siloed, I imagine. That's something that we've seen on both sides of the pond, so to say. Uh, I'm curious, before you ended up in Prime Minister Johnson's office, where were you? How did did your path in life lead you to serve in the highest office of the United Kingdom?
1: So I had worked in politics in the UK for about a decade or so, mostly in, in Conservative. Uh, party politics of various roles. Uh, I had actually worked for the prime minister when he was mayor of London. If you remember, he served two terms as uh, mayor of London in the 2010s, and so I knew him and his team from City Hall days. And then prior to um, to that, I'd worked um, in uh, in Parliament and uh, in in national government as well. So I was in some ways connected to the party and to to his team. And I suppose in July of 2019 when he suddenly secured the leadership of the party, I was honoured to be asked to join the, the administration. And, and at that time, of course, everything was about Brexit, not about this once-in-a-lifetime in a pandemic. So it was a strange time to be there when I think two sort of world-changing events unfolded. And uh, at the time, it was very unclear, even inside government, quite how they would play out. So it was a, it was a strange and unusual time to, to join government in the UK. It was a privilege to, to, to be there then, and also a very unusual and historic time.
0: I bet it was. Well, you know, the Brexit story that you uh, were able to walk as you joined Prime Minister Johnson's administration would have had a bit of a trilogy. I'm not going to make any comparisons to the unfortunate Star Wars trilogies, all three of them, but I do think that between David Cameron, Theresa May, and Boris Johnson, it's a bookended story about the rise of UK sovereignty. I- I'm curious now that we have a deal at the end of 2020, after all that work and after all that debate. First of all, do you think that it was worth it? That it was that it has served the Commonwealth well?
1: I think I think that's a, a question that historians will take a long time to answer, and the political class in the UK is still very much divided on. The public, interestingly, uh, have not moved a great deal during all of this time. It, it 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 really is hard to explain to people who weren't in the UK quite how traumatic those four years were, and how all consuming the Brexit debate in the media and in public life was for those four years the ups and downs the false the false hope the the deals that fell apart the parliamentary tribulations the snap elections it was a very politically disrupted time and i think at that point it was really a question trying to actually decide if something could be achieved at all the most important thing about the brexit uh, end point if you like is that it's it's really just the beginning. The withdrawal agreement settled the accounts to to use a phrase, and the trade and cooperation agreement, which was which was done on Christmas Eve, just gone, is the basis of the future relationship. So as to whether it's worth it or not, I think that all depends on whether the the agreement lives up to its hype and whether it um, delivers for both parties. But I think the actual wisdom, if you like, of the of the 2016 referendum is still contested, and uh, people on both sides will. We'll debate that for years to come.
0: They will indeed. Well, then what a great springboard to talk about this particular uh, deal. Uh, we saw the deal announced by by Boris Johnson at the end of the calendar year, a rupturous, disruptive year. The UK has done some pretty powerful things when it comes to vaccine ex- uh, research and distribution. You can almost see a more independent, a more sovereign United Kingdom being comfortable and confident in authorizing particular vaccines for, for the British people, but also this deal, this deal, it was a Christmas gift uh, that I think Prime Minister Johnson was just very keen to deliver for his own people. Why don't you give us a bit of a summary as to what your takeaways were on what that deal constituted?
1: Well, I think firstly, it's important to say that the pandemic is casting a a shadow over everything. So even a pretty momentous and, and quite unexpected 11th hour outcome like this this trade deal in normal times would we'll be getting a huge amount of additional publicity and credit to the government for for achieving it uh, and it's been somewhat sort of lost the details have certainly not been poured over in the media in the way that they would have been in normal times because of the impact of covid and and people's priorities being elsewhere but it is quite a uh, a momentous outcome really given that at least uh until actually middle december uh, of 2020 it was uh, a really you know quite genuine prospect that there could be a bad outcome and the parties would walk away and there would effectively be no trade deal between the uk and its largest export market which of course would have had all sorts of impact on business and travel and trade that um, would have made the government's current difficulties even harder. So the fact that it pulled it out of the bag in sort of the final stretch, I think, is quite an achievement. And I think the the details will be poured over over a longer period of time once the normal political tempo returns.
0: Absolutely. And and some of the major features that we've been able to extrapolate from, I guess, thousands of pages of what I think the Prime Minister described as pretty easily comprehensible English. What would be some of the major ones that stood out for you as great victories for the UK or uh, big concessions to the EU
1: yeah, so there were concessions clearly on on both sides and that was expected many of them actually came in the last um, few weeks the the big the big success um, which the EU has has agreed to which was you know unusual and, and has never been part of an existing trade agreement before is having completely zero tariffs and and quotas on all all trading goods between the UK and and the EU bloc. So that really amounts to a significant achievement, because it will mean that the costs to businesses are, are obviously no higher than they would be within the EU single market. There will be transaction costs, and there will be other things that need adjusting to. But that's a major, that's a major win. Services, which of course are such a big part of the UK's economy are not covered by the, by the deal. There are aspirations and certain principles that have been signed up to about the ability of UK service companies to, to operate in the EU, but it's not the same level of access. But then people didn't really expect that uh, from this particular agreement. There's also important agreements around security, which mean that the uh, collaboration and cooperation on things like criminal extradition and prosecution will be possible. Data sharing as well is in there. So, criminal records, passenger name records, these sorts of uh, bulk data exchanges will be able to continue. And then there's also things like um, the Horizon programme, which which is a major EU-backed research programme for R&D across the continent, which the UK has agreed to continue to contribute to, both intellectually and, and, and in terms of funding. So both sides have made concessions. It will be interesting to see how. In practice, the UK will be able to deregulate and diverge as it clearly wants to do and needs to do in order to you know, achieve the, the real benefits of Brexit, because it may be that those kind of uh, steps to diverge from the EU standards or EU law are those things that trigger uh, a trade dispute. But there's at least a mechanism now for those disputes to be adjudicated, and there may be a cost to them. We'll see what the UK decides to do. But um, the framework looks pretty good to me.
0: Right, so across tariffs, services, security, research and development, and adjudication—that's quite a gambit of a trade agreement. That's that's a big deal. I have to observe that Prime Minister Johnson, upon announcement of this deal, uh, was wearing a tie populated with many intricate fish, and on top of a blue herringbone shirt. Fish was obviously an issue of negotiation between the European Union and the United Kingdom do you think that that was ultimately a concession or a win for the british people on fishing rights and the longevity that the uk can see uh, and have sovereignty over its own waters
1: i think probably it's a concession that that had to be made and it was one that was um probably priced in from earlier in the in the negotiations i think the the view was that there were certain things that Uh, the UK government needed to do to support the future of the fishing industry in the UK and the coastal communities that depend on it. And I think those things are still possible. So there's talk now of quite serious subsidy to those industries and to improve and expand the capacity of the fishing fleet and the processing industry in order to get through a a sort of five, five and a half year transition period where, yes, um, the EU will still be able to have claim on some of the, the resources in the UK you know, marine environment, but over the time of the of the transition, the UK fishing fleet will be able to expand, and there will be more uh, of that um, value that that comes back to the UK. But it was clearly a, a concession. It's not possible in an international agreement like this to jeopardize the entire value of a trade deal on the basis of an industry that makes up less than one percent of the UK economy.
0: One percent of the UK economy, but surely you do not tire of the UK's identity. And it's deep ties to fish
1: and chips. No, indeed. And, and there's going to be more fish, um, <laughs> but maybe less chips. The, the government at the moment is, is not so keen on salt and fatty foods. But I think in future, the, the, the industry does, does have to navigate the change. And in terms of the consumer, I think the benefits of, of you know, zero tariffs on, on trade and goods is something that um, in the end was more, was more important to, to secure.
0: Very good. Thank you for that. Thank you for indulging me. But let me ask you this. L- looking at how this trade negotiation went down between the UK and the European Union, this would have been the first very serious trade negotiation that the United Kingdom has independently undertaken in quite some time. They are simultaneously pursuing trade agreements with maybe some 40, 30 to 40 different jurisdictions around the world alongside this one at the United- with the European Union. And looking to Canada and our own bilateral trade negotiation with the UK. I know there's been good intentions between Ottawa and London to land a deal um, and to land a very good deal. What kind of implications do you think Canadians and Canadian policymakers can take from the UK position with the EU as they look more toward our own relationship?
1: I think the, the EU discussion was a unique one because it was trying to maintain certain advantages of the status quo, while also trying to secure change and allow divergence. And I think that will mean that future trade agreements with other countries start from a different place. And there will be much more upside, potentially from securing bilateral agreements with with countries where none exist at the present time. But I think the the experience of the Brexit negotiations was such an important one for building that kind of bureaucratic trade diplomacy capacity within government really because as you sort of suggest the 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 UK despite being you know a major economy in the world and a major military power had effectively outsourced a core function of sovereign government to the European Union for over four decades and that that muscle if you like has not been used and so in order to exercise it again it needs to follow on from this eu deal a much more ambitious trade deal agenda where a newly established department of state can get used again to to what's involved in that kind of trade diplomacy and the importance of also having ongoing discussions with countries where you already have existing agreements but you want to further and and, and deepen those and and canada would be one of those where where I think the government already sees a, a, a very clear opportunity.
0: Yeah, exactly right.
1: I think there's huge symmetry between these Commonwealth
0: nations, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom. Some people have been having make it, made a great case for why Kenzuk cooperation is only one but many of the new frontiers for British and Canadian diplomacy. Uh, to, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you think about these new types of opportunities that the United Kingdom has, looking to Canada, looking to Kanzuk, where do you think Prime Minister Johnson might be best served to place priority in his own negotiations in an emancipated United Kingdom?
1: So I think the, the UK government is very naturally thinking about the early opportunities that come from securing bilateral agreements with countries that are culturally similar, even if those countries don't represent the biggest economic gain from a, from a free trade agreement, for example, Australia or New Zealand. But collectively, of course, the sort of countries, the four countries in KanZuk, do share more than just uh, a cultural identity. They share a system of law, they share a system of adjudication and, and, and commitment to, to human rights and, and international obligations. So these countries will be the ones that I think become uh, quite important for the trade agenda in the next couple of years. That's not to say the agreements will be uncomplicated um, or, or or simple to agree with 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 each of them because their economies are so different in some ways. You know, the, the Canadian economy is much more reliant on on natural resources and, and, and manufacturing and agriculture, for example, than the UK is, which is obviously a country more more geared towards financial services and uh, professional services than than Canada. But I think um, they will start with uh, what, what looks like more low hanging fruit. And it will give them momentum to engage them potentially longer term with the possibility of a trade deal with, with China or with the U.S.
0: Right. And as you think about this, or the organizing principle that Kanzuk could provide, whether it is a, a customs union or a trade agreement, uh, there, are, there are a whole range of ways in which Kanzuk partners can discuss their own economic constitution. But of course, these four partners also sit with the United States in the Five Eyes Alliance in international security cooperation, uh, which has, you know, existential importance to all. Uh, I guess this is a great platform for me to ask you the question, you know, China poses a powerful strategic challenge to Western democracies, uh, to to capitalism at large through their own state-owned model. Uh, the United Kingdom has uh, an intense history with negotiating with China, particularly watching China walk away from a deal that they had made Uh, over Hong Kong and its security and its model of governance. Um, Australia, as a Kanzuk and Five Eyes partner, is in the process of a very deep-rooted delinking with China uh, as a result of a deep overreach by the Chinese government and the Communist Party into the Australian economy. Um, How do you think the United Kingdom, as it is now... uh, independent and sovereign from the European decisions, European Union decisions, how, how do you think the United Kingdom will act um, as they are you know, in this post-Brexit environment? What do you think will be Prime Minister Johnson's assessment of how to engage the questions of China and uh, the world and international alliances that are now before him?
1: I think it's a great question. I think the, the importance of China to the UK economy can't be uh, understated and that was partly a consequence really of of the coalition government and a and a decade where under Prime Minister Cameron uh, there was a deliberate agenda to to forge stronger links with China in terms of investment and uh, cooperation but the the world has changed and what's interesting is the extent to which the Brexit debate which was really nothing to do with China has ended up in a place where Europe loses one of its most important uh, economic and military member states at a time where the world is itself trying to forge new alliances to contain what is seen as a rising threat. And it might be that Brexit happens at a time when that divergence is already occurring and where countries like, as you say, Australia, other countries in the Pacific, countries like India, decide to uh, unite more and close ranks against China. And then the UK has the option of of which way to go, particularly if the European Union decides to pursue a degree of um, detente with China and and particularly with Russia. We'll see how that that plays out. But it gives certainly the UK a degree of freedom of movement that it perhaps wouldn't have had if Brexit wasn't uh, a reality. And of course, being such a major um, military power and a recent government commitment to uh, further increase military spending in the UK means that I think um, uh, it puts an extra emphasis on what the UK will decide to do in terms of contributing to some of these regional alliances potentially that are forming in order to to curb the, um, the growth of China, as you say, which is, which is very worrying. Indeed. And, you know, this is a, an
0: important year for the UK to have its own diplomacy geopolitically and in multilateral fora, UK will be hosting in 2021, the the group of seven, the G7. Prime Minister Johnson has, I think, uh, in an inspired way, expanded the remit of the G7 to include a concept of a digital 10 in which you have countries like South Korea, Australia, India, uh, having honest conversations with other advanced market economies about norms around digital governance. But they're also hosting COP twenty-six. So, what do you think British diplomacy between these two flagship summits and the regional diplomacy that you've just articulated uh, in the Pacific and beyond? How do you think the United Kingdom is going to navigate twenty twenty-one?
1: Well, the government um, obviously didn't expect the the pandemic, and the COP conference, for example, was was actually scheduled for November, just gone. So, having that delayed a year means that you're right. There are now two major international summits that the UK is uh, convening in the same year. And it happens to be the year where Brexit has taken effect and uh, the UK is a sovereign country again. So there will be, I think, uh, a lot of ambition within the government to put the resources in and spend what's required to make those events a success. And that isn't just about, obviously, the the practicalities of putting on a, uh, a successful and safe international conference. It will be about trying to demonstrate that the UK can still pursue a leadership role alongside countries like the US uh, and India and China and others who who actually matter more in economic and, and climate change terms than the UK does. But it's uh, clearly going to be something that they're focused on. They've already started, for example, to articulate some of their environmental and energy goals, which are very ambitious and which are pioneering in many ways. And I can expect a lot of that to eventually culminate in in announcements that will happen around November and the conference in Glasgow, because the UK does want to be seen as not just a science superpower, but a very devoted and uh, committed uh, climate change country where there is uh, real investment into green technologies and securing a green industrial revolution so i think that will be a huge focus and then in terms of digital the the future success i think of of trade deals for the uk will depend on how much the digital agenda can take off and whether there's consensus around the standards because when you get data and 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 digital standards agreed as part of trade deals then services can be included and you get much more economic benefit so so that agenda really matters um, we'll see if the if the politicians can emerge from the the catastrophe of of covid and you know breathe again the summit will become the i think the focus for the uk's domestic and diplomatic effort for the rest of 2021 and
0: possibly set the table for the world's agenda as well i mean what, what's interesting to me and what you just described you've described the a british opportunity a very british opportunity To shape and host the global conversations around the global economic recovery following the pandemic, the climate and energy conversations around sensible terms in how green technologies can actually address not just innovations and how energy is produced, but also hopefully holding the worst emitters accountable for the production of pollution that they are responsible for. And of course, the third dimension being technology and the disruption technology provides in international relations or in people-to-people relations, it is such a powerful disruption. All three of these critical conversations are now heading through the UK one way or another in 2021. It's a really interesting time. And to think of Boris Johnson himself, somebody who you've come to know well from his mayor days until his prime ministership, you know, I think a lot of people underestimated who he was, didn't they?
1: And I think they still do. I think the the strength of politicians is obviously de- down to not just their experience and their resilience, uh, but also their character. And one of Boris Johnson's great strengths, which even his critics would concede, is his ability to communicate. It's one of the reasons that that made the difference. I think in the in the referendum campaign, when he decided to back Leave, he became uh, instantly one of the most effective communicators of the of the Brexit uh, vision. But he's also a big picture politicians so people have uh, assumed that because of his prior life before politics as a journalist that means they can't be serious politicians i think that's completely wrong i think the the reality is that some of the most successful politicians in the uk not just now but in the past uh, began life as as journalists you know winston churchill was a journalist and it's sometimes about the ability of Um, national leaders to see the bigger picture and you need to have a good team around you and you can delegate to them uh, the close attention to detail and uh, to rely on a good technocracy to try and help uh, deliver the change that you want but ultimately you have to have a charismatic and convincing communicator at the top to sell a vision like Brexit and to and to build alliances, which increasingly is what matters. So I think over time, not only will the pandemic response be probably considered more favourably than it's being talked about now, but I think the Johnson government will benefit immensely from having that figurehead and the strength of somebody like Boris Johnson as a communicator, because increasingly in this world, there is a a set of competing visions about the future, uh, from Uh, countries like China or from Russia and elsewhere, and you need um, leaders who are able to connect with the public, communicate in plain English, and paint a picture. And uh, he's fantastic.
0: Right. Well, then, you know, as you mentioned, uh, competing visions for the future are not just restrained to the disputes that the, the free and democratic world have with Russia and with China, but also amongst ourselves. You think about what's happening in this transition in the United States today from President Donald Trump to President elect Joe Biden. You know, you've got massive disruptions in Capitol Hill in Washington, DC today, around the Electoral College, after an incredible moment in American democracy in which more voters had ever voted than at any other point in history. It strikes me that in democracies themselves. Not only is polarization more deeply felt in each individual democracy, but the concept of how democracies can work together seems to be kind of falling through our fingers. It's eroding a little bit the the ability for democracies to to work with one another uh, in confronting the greater geopolitical threats uh, seems quite perilously placed right now. You've been through this path in how a polarized democracy in the United Kingdom has now resulted in a unified position around British independence and sovereignty. What kind of insights do you think you might have or be able to offer in how other democracies dealing with deeply polarized populations might be able to to learn from the British example? And uh, what kind of implication might that have for democracies in their own cooperation with each other?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think you're right that um, we're entering an era where Transnational cooperation is more difficult to achieve, and I think it's ironic because given where we are with the, the advance of technology it 's in fact never been easier to to connect person to person around the world and through technology. but um, governments, not necessarily the uk government but many other governments are going another way. The experience of brexit was as I mentioned quite difficult for the UK, uh, in many ways, but it was also quite galvanising. the The referendum itself was, by its nature, quite a crude tool to answer um, essentially a binary proposition. But it was a question that had completely dominated um, discussions about the future of the economy and of policies like migration for so long that it was begging. To be resolved one way or another. And I think most people now not only haven't changed their mind, but have increasingly come to accept not just the 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 referendum result, but some of the possible benefits that might come from the the outcome of it. So there's plenty of people around the world who would use the example of Brexit to say that referendums are a terrible thing. I don't really agree with that. I think that Different democracies obviously need to need to take what tools that you know they have and the traditions that they they use to to settle these contested um, questions. And you know, if if plebiscits and, and referendums were such a toxic and, and and dangerous idea, then then Switzerland would not be a very safe and wealthy and stable country because they have more than any other country. Um, they use referen, referendums and plebiscits all the time. I think there's a discussion to be had about how international agreements uh, achieve democratic consent, because that's the other thing that I think is important. You know, governments go through electoral cycles, and those don't always align with when treaties get ratified and when people get engaged on the terms of those treaties. Um, And as you say, there is a general concern about the rise of um, of uh, polarization and uh, the impact of technology, frankly, on on those things that fuel polarisation, that sometimes means that parliamentary discussion and debate feels almost irrelevant. These issues, they explode before uh, MPs have even had a chance to to engage on them. They're not really about parliamentary decision-making, and yet Parliament is seen as the only political solution. But um, I think the discussion about democracy can't any longer be divorced from the discussion about how we regulate uh, the technology platforms and the innovations that um, that fuel the public debate that we see in the public realm now
0: that's a fascinating proposition you know as you're discussing this, I was thinking we i don't think are well served with anonymous trolling in free Western societies where autocratic societies can exploit those freedoms in Western societies but suppress uh, the same mechanisms for debate and discourse in their own countries. There's a, there's a discord there. There's a a complete de-link of logic that I think, uh, we all need to work collectively toward evening out so that accountability can actually be something that enhances the democratic experience. Um, and that, you know, more freedom can be actually expanded
1: to people in places where societies are quite closed as a result of their own tyrannies. I think that's really that's really uh, important and I think it's it's all bound up with this idea that you know as the internet continues to dominate our lives and political discussion is conducted increasingly through the online medium you know do do free do free societies that are founded on individual rights and individual freedoms do they really prosper in an economic environment where uh, the influence on people's opinions and the information they absorb uh, is is delivered largely by platforms that don't require individual verification of identity. That that people's voice can be simultaneously very powerful and spread very quickly around the world and influence many people, but it might not be authentic. It might not be them. And I think that's a really important challenge that Western governments still haven't managed to address.
0: I am appreciative that our Western governments are a bit more oriented around the idea of more freedom than less. (laughs) I think that at the end of the day, um, the, 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 the instincts are right in how to engage these, even if the debate remains unresolved. Listen, Blair, what a fascinating conversation about the present and exciting state that the UK is in today, the end of the beginning and the beginning of something new, I think is a way that you may have paraphrased it as part of this conversation. Thank you so very much for for your contributions to us at the McDonald Laurier Institute. We look to, forward to many, many more, and uh, especially today for your insight on uh, what Brexit means for the United Kingdom and for Canada and for our mutual opportunities everywhere else. What a what a fantastic conversation! Thank you so much for it.
1: No, my my pleasure, and, and thank you for uh, thank you for indulging me. It's a great uh, great thing to be in Canada, and I'm hoping that. In my professional and personal life, I can continue to connect and bring uh, the mutual interests of uh, two great countries uh, together on, uh, on many different occasions.